The scripture this morning is located in the Pew Bibles on page 672, the last chapter of Matthew. Matthew chapter 28, uh, verses... Sixteen through twenty. I'll give you a moment. Then the eleven disciples went into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were some doubted. Then Jesus came and spoke to them, "All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth." Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Good morning. It is good to see each one of you. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you. We are encouraged that you're here, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. We are saddened to announce that we learned last night about Jerry McCullough's passing away. And he is the son of Nabe and Alice McCullough and also relatives of many in this congregation. And we're saddened with that and we want to continue to pray uh, for this good family and strengthen and encourage them in, in every way that we can. We are thankful that Amy and Nick and their family are in furlough, as already mentioned, from Brazil. We're thankful for the great work that they do. And uh, we are looking forward to being able to visit with them face to face and catch up. And uh, we look forward uh, to them encouraging us. And we hope that we can also return that encouragement to them. We want to remind you that today is another day that the pictures are being taken to update our database for our family tree. And if you want to go immediately following services to the lower fellowship room, all you have to do is sign a piece of paper, sit down, get your picture taken, and you're out. It's really that quick. And we appreciate so many of you have been doing that. And it's such a blessing. And we thank you for doing that. And, and uh, there'll be another, at least one more schedule before the end of the year. But we want to encourage you to do that either today or, or at the future date as that comes up. Also, uh, not next Sunday, but the following Sunday, September the 8th, we will begin a new quarter of study in our Bible classes, and we're also going to begin a new class that we're calling the Manifold class. And what we're hoping is that if you do not have a Bible class that is your home, uh, we want you to be sure and come on September the 8th. Uh, we, we look forward to that class beginning, and our hope is that a lot of folks that uh, are not in Bible class will come and make that their home. It'll be a new class. Everybody will be getting to know each other. Uh, and, and so we want to let you know that you're invited. We're praying that you'll come. One of the great ways that we learn each other, other better we build stronger relationships with each other, we can actually serve each other better, is when we get to know each other through our Bible classes. And then in addition to that, we learn God's Word. And it really is a win in many different directions. And so if you're here this morning and you haven't been going to a Bible class lately, we beg you, please join us. Doesn't matter what age you are, it's gonna be intergenerational. Uh, we would love for you to be a part of that Bible class. Be given that thought and I look forward to seeing you in that class. 
I've shared this story with you before, but to be honest with you, I just love the story so much and it makes sense. And, and uh, I didn't tell first service this and then I got in a, a few minutes into the lesson and it seemed like people were like giving me that cloudy eye look, you know, and I thought maybe I should have told them it's not a rerun sermon, but, uh, uh, but, but we'll start with a rerun story, all right? As the story goes, the couple died tragically, an accident at the same time, and they enter into the pearly gates, and Peter is there to show them around, and he shows them this beautiful house, and it is amazing. The latest technology in the kitchen and the appliances and, and the trim work, and they walk through the house, and the bathrooms are elaborate, and they go out back, the deck and the pool, and the man starts getting nervous. He says, Peter, you don't understand. We're very modest people. We could not afford this by any stretch of the imagination. He says, Peter, he laughs. He says, you don't understand. You're in heaven. This is free. He said, no. He said, yes. And he said, as a matter of fact, he said, see that golf course out behind your pool there? He said, yes. He says, that golf course, you can play on it any day you want. He looks out at this pristine golf course. and He said, oh, no, I can never afford the membership at a place like that. He says, Peter, you're not getting this. It's free. You're in heaven. He says, as a matter of fact, let me take you down to the clubhouse. And he shows him this restaurant in there at the clubhouse. And, and he shows him buffets that just has every food that you could imagine. And, and he says, wow, what would it cost to be able to eat a meal here? Maybe my wife and I could save some money up and come eat here sometime. He laughs. He says, you don't get it. it you're in heaven. It, it's free. You can just enjoy all this that you want. And he says, well, well okay. Well, like, where, where's the, the buffet part that's the healthy section? Peter laughs again. He says, you're in heaven. You can eat fried pies. You can eat banana pudding. You can eat anything you want. You're not going to die. This is heaven. And the man, he, he pulls his hat off his head and he begins to just wring it up in anger. And finally he starts beating his leg with it. And, and his wife and, and Peter are saying, what, what, what's wrong with you? Calm down. What's wrong? And he looks over at his wife and he says, do you realize if it were not for your brand muffins and you making us walk three miles every day, we could have been here 15 years ago. <laughs> I want to go home. I want to go to heaven. I love earth and I love my family on earth and God's family on earth. And there's some great things about earth, but I tell you, I want to go home. There is a place that is beautiful. It's beyond our imagination and we won't spend one second there except we'll say, I don't want to go back to earth. There's nothing holding me at earth. I love my new home. We've just read what Jesus gave us as a great commission. And that commission is all about us going home, us being disciples of Jesus. And yet there's something else very significant. He added, I don't want you to go home alone. I want you to take others with you. I want you to be a disciple and disciples go out and they make other disciples do you recognize what our mission is in life? When we look at Moses in Exodus, the third chapter, he was told very clearly that his mission in life was to lead the children of Israel out of the Egyptian bondage, Exodus 3 and 10. After he passed away, Joshua was told very clearly at that point what his mission was in life. Joshua was told that now that Moses is dead, you are to lead the people across the Jordan to the territory that I will give you. Later, David led these people. And in 2 Samuel, the fifth chapter, at the end of verse 2, it was clearly told to him by the Lord what his mission would be. The Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. 
Jesus came to this earth and several times he clearly identified that he knew what his mission was. When he was talking to Zacchaeus in Luke the ninth chapter and verse 10, he said, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And when he spoke in Mark the 10th chapter and verse 45, it says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Moses clearly knew what his mission was. God clearly defined it. Joshua, it was clearly defined for him what his mission was. David had it clearly defined for him what his mission was. Jesus knew exactly what his mission was. And maybe that leaves you and I sitting here saying, I wish he would, God would clearly define a mission for me. I wish he would speak to me and tell me exactly what he wants me to do. And we look in the text today, Matthew the 28th chapter. And notice again, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He told us. He said, I want to give you a mission. Individually, families, a church family. I want to give you a mission your mission is to go out in life as disciples and make other disciples. I want you to go out and how are we going to make them, Lord? Three participles to tell us how we're going to make them. I want you to go and I want you to baptize and I want you to continue teaching. But if you thought that is what the mission is, that's what the mission that we are to do. But let's reverse that a little bit. What does the mission do for us? I want to just bullet a few things. And it's interesting. I was talking with Andrew Phillips recently about vision. And he said, there's a book that you really ought to read. And he said, Nick Fowler was the one that, that told me about this book. And I appreciate so much that recommendation. The book has set the course. And for just a moment, this isn't the lesson this morning, but for just a moment... I want to give you a few bullet points of what missions do. And I want you to see what a mission would do for us in this great commission that the Lord gives. Number one, missions dictate the ministry's direction. Or we could fill in the, the word congregation. Or we could fill in the word Christian there instead of ministry. It dictates the direction. Yogi Berra former catcher for the Yankees. You remember he had such a humorous way of saying things. And he says, if you do not know where you're going, you might end up somewhere else. Well, now, when you think about in your life, the beauty of the mission is that it gives us direction. When we really submit to the mission, we know where we're going. We're on a mission to go to heaven and we're on a mission to take as many with us as possible. It gives us direction. Now think about individuals that do not have that mission in their life. Eternally, what will their direction lead them toward? It really makes a difference what our mission is. Number two, the mission formulates the ministry function. With function, let's just ask the word, what is the one thing we must do? The mission provides that. And so we listen to the Lord and we say, Lord, what is the one thing that we must be about as the Mount Juliet Church of Christ? And he would say, you must be about making disciples. That is the function that we must be about. Are you a disciple? Are you growing as a disciple? What are you doing to use the time, the ability, the energies that God has given you 
to influence others to become disciples of the Lord. Number three, it focuses our future. We cannot predict the future, but isn't it wonderful that we can have the hand in creating the future? You see, God's done everything that God needs to do to save our souls. And now, where you will spend an eternity is based on your decision. If you follow the mission, you can spend an eternity with God in heaven. If you decide not to follow the mission, you can decide to spend an eternity separated from God. But you see, the choice is yours. That's the beauty. The beauty of the mission is that it helps form our future. And the beauty of the mission is God gives us the opportunity and the responsibility to help other people's future be changed also. We literally as a church receiving this mission from the Lord. Now, let me state the obvious for a moment. God can do anything he wants to do. If God wanted to, God could have said, I'm going to save mankind and I want you to stay completely out of each other's business. Don't ever talk about me to anybody else. And I'm going to miraculously come down and I'm going to talk myself as God. I'm going to talk to every individual on earth. You say, okay, that's, that's how he's going to offer salvation. He didn't offer it that way. Instead, he said, I'm going to offer salvation. I'm going to offer this beautiful gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to place it solely on the responsibility of the church. If they want to get the word out and tell people what they can do to be saved, the world can be saved. If the church doesn't want to fulfill the mission, the world will be lost. We work in partnership with God. God affects people's future and the church. The people sitting in this room has much to do with how many people in our community will spend an eternity with God. That's how powerful the impact of a mission can have upon the future of people that live around us. Fourth, the mission provides the framework for decisions. We need boundaries. The mission gives boundaries. There'll be things that we could easily get distracted about. The mission places boundaries in to say, you know, we don't need to be a part of that because that's not going to help fulfill our mission. There'll be other things that we'll look at and it will fit within the mission. And because of those boundaries, we'll say we absolutely need to be a part of that because it helps us fulfill our mission. Number five, the mission inspires unity. Isn't it wonderful that in Christ we are together? But also in Christ, we do not lose our individual identity. We all have the same unity because of the mission of Jesus Christ. As Jesus prayed in John 17, that all of his believers would become one as he and the Father are one. But we, even though we share in the same mission, we do not lose who we are. We come from different backgrounds. There are some here that were born in poverty and there are others born with a silver spoon in their mouth and it doesn't make one better than the other, but we share in the same mission. There are those that come from different religious backgrounds, but now we all share in the same mission. There are those that come with amazing abilities in one area and somebody sitting right next to you, they don't have your ability, but they have another amazing ability in another area. 
We have different opportunities. We have different talents. We're different ages. We come from different backgrounds. We bring different resources to the table. But here's what's awesome. We all bring who we are in a unified force to fulfill the mission toward taking as many to heaven with us as we can. It's a beautiful thought of what a mission does for us. And then finally at this point, I'll say that the mission increases longevity. How long is the Mount Julia Church of Christ going to do what it does? Thank God the mission is never tied to an individual as in the sense that that individual does it and no one else does it. Because if that was the case, the longevity would not be very long. You see, preachers come and go. Elders, deacons, Bible class teachers, they live and they die. Everybody in this room does the same thing. You see, the fact is that the Mount Juliet Church of Christ, this particular congregation has been fulfilling this mission a lot longer than anybody in this room has been alive. And it's because that is the power of a mission. A mission's longevity is far beyond the life and has far greater importance than any individual life. And so now for the rest of this time, let's go back to our text in Matthew, the 28th chapter. And I'd like for us to spend the rest of the time addressing this important question. Who fulfills the mission that God offers us? I'm not saying this about a specific person in this room, but out of this many in the room, there's probably someone in here that doesn't fulfill the mission. Why? Why is it that there are many in this room that do and there would be perhaps some in this room that don't? What, what is the difference? I mean, there has to be something greater in difference than just saying, well, somebody does and somebody doesn't. In other words, why? Or let's say that there's someone here this morning that says, you know what? I love the Lord and I love his mission, but I know I have room to grow. What is it that we could do to grow? What is it that we could do to do a better job this year in fulfilling the Lord's mission than we did last year? Here in this text, there are some powerful principles that we see beginning back in verse 16 and 17. If you will, read with me. Matthew, the 28th chapter, look, 16. Then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Isn't that interesting? Verse 16 talks about the time that had been appointed in other words, this wasn't a last minute gathering. This fact of them gathering at this particular place and at this particular time had been an appointment that had been set. And all of us have met appointments before, but I dare say no one here has had so much go on in their lives from the time an appointment was set up to the time that you kept an appointment than Jesus Christ at this point. Jesus Christ set up this appointment. In the meantime, all his, one of his friends betrayed him. Another friend denied him and all of his friends forsook him. He was arrested. He was persecuted. He was crucified. He was buried and he rose again. And yet he still kept this appointment. As a matter of fact, when Jesus Christ resurrected, the angels reminded the followers of this appointment. Jesus Christ, one of the first things he talked to them about after his resurrection was remembering this appointment. Scholars say that it may be not just the 11 at this particular appointment, but you remember in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 6, it talks about over 500 people seeing Jesus in the resurrected form at one occasion. 
Many scholars believe that this was the occasion where that 500 plus would have been gathered together also. Who came to this appointment? Apparently it was people that wanted to see Jesus. In other words, at the end of that appointment, the people that came to see Jesus were the ones that left with the Great Commission. Who fulfills that Great Commission today? I would offer to you that it's the people that see God. The people that see Jesus. Do you? Do you long to see Jesus? Do you care if you see Jesus? It's going to be real hard to get fired up about encouraging other people to become disciples if we don't really care if we ever see Jesus. You know that vacation place that you're really, really looking forward to going to? Sometime recently, you thought about it, didn't you? You pictured in your mind. You know that family that lives out of town that you miss dearly? You've thought about them recently, haven't you? You picture them in your mind. When's the last time you meditated upon God? Have you just looked forward to seeing Him? You look forward to walking up to Jesus and talking with Him. Telling Him thank you. Worshiping Him. Listen. I can never be someone that cares about the Great Commission if I myself do not care about the one who gave it. Do you see Jesus? You know, when we look at Moses, considered one of the greats in the Scriptures for a lot of good reasons. But have you ever considered what makes the greats great? We could give a list of awesome things that Moses did but if you thought about who he was and you drop back and you read in Exodus the 32nd chapter and, and the children of Israel had just built their idol and they broke God's heart and God would not move close to them. He literally moved out from the midst of them. And Moses realized the people that he was leading was not going to see God. And Moses cherished the thought of living in God's presence. And so in verse 33, he literally turns to God and he says, remove my name out of the book and put their name in my place. And you remember God said he wouldn't do that because each has to answer individually. But do you see how important it was to Moses that people be with God? And as a matter of fact, when we look at the very next chapter, we see why it was so important to Moses that people would be with God. Because in the next chapter, we learn how important it was to Moses to be with God. When Moses said, I'm, God told Moses he's moving out of the presence of the people, but what he'll do is he'll send his angel. They were out in the middle of a wilderness. And he said, I'm not going to be among you anymore, but I'm going to send my angel. And he's going to lead you to the promised land. A lot of people would have said, oh, good, good. We still get all the blessings. We're still going to get this land that flows with milk and honey. We're, going to, we're still going to have these nice houses to live in. We're going to have our own nation. We're not going to be slaves anymore. We're not going to live in a tent in the wilderness anymore. We're not going to be eating manna and etc. and etc. 
Most people would have loved the fact we're getting the blessings of God. You remember, don't you? You remember what Moses said? He said, Lord, if your presence does not go with us, we'll stay here. Let that sink in. God, I don't care what earthly blessings you can give us. We will forsake all earthly blessings if we can just live within your presence. And about three verses down, he says to God, show me your glory. Remember, that's where God says, you can't see my face or you'll die. And he set him up, the cleft of a rock. And it's beyond our imagination. And God literally put his hand over Moses because he couldn't let him see his face. And God passed by and dropped his hand and let him see the back of God. And he gives us cold chills. And something is wrong with us spiritually. If we can honestly say, I don't ever think about seeing God. I can guarantee you, you don't ever think about the Great Commission either. People that want people to see God are people that already see God. But notice when we see God, I'm talking about when we really see God. We see God for who He is and how He's presented to us and all that He's done for us. We're going to do also like they did in verse 17 here. And that is we're going to worship God. Worship is to pour out adoration toward. To adore. When we see the greatness of God, we realize how weak we are and how worthy He is of worship. In Isaiah, the sixth chapter, and if you've not read this lately, I encourage you to go back this afternoon, jot this down and read it. It's Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. It's a scene where Isaiah is taken in a vision and he's allowed to see in this vision the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. No one else is on his level. He's worthy. And his robe has a train on it that fills the room. There is smoke whenever he speaks. The seraphims, the seraphims are, are, are literally flying with six wings and they're singing praises to God. Holy is his name and, and the whole earth is full of glory. His glory. And he sees the greatness of God. He's a changed man. He doesn't start a fist pump saying how awesome this is. He sees the greatness of God and he starts seeing his weakness and he says, I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. In other words, he says, here I am standing in the greatness of God and I'm not worthy. And so, so in this vision, God has a seraphim fly over and take tongs and, and a coal and, and touch his lips as a sign of purifying him in this vision. And so now, by the grace of God, he's been justified. And the Lord cries out, who shall I send? And who will go for me? And verse 8 is where he says, now think about the Great Commission. He says, here I am, Lord. Send me. Who are people that's willing to go out and work in partnership with God? It's always people that see God and people that truly see God should be bowing down and worshiping Him. And when we worship Him, we see His greatness, we see how weak we are, we're so thankful for His grace, we know it's the only way that we can make it, and we want to go out and tell other people about this God that offers so much grace. He loves us so much, and we can spend an eternity with Him. But you know what? Not everybody that sees God does that. You see the last part of verse 17? 
They worshiped him, but some doubted. Some people come where people worship, but they don't worship. And I would suppose for many of them, the reason they do not worship is because of their doubt. It's not that they're atheists. It's just that they doubt that they can truly give it all over to Jesus. Keep in mind, these people knew that they were going to see a man who had died not many weeks before. There were probably some that wanted to come out to see Jesus just to see what a resurrected man looked like. Maybe there were others that came out to see Jesus that day and they were just hoping he'd do one of his big miracles again. There might have been someone that came out to see him that day that had a physical ailment and they just hoped that he would cure them physically. And when they, when they didn't see whatever it was that they hoped that they would see, they doubted that he was really worthy of worship. Is he truly God? According to Jesus' very own words, he should have told them, get up. Stop worshiping me. Because remember when he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan? Remember he told Satan that yet thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. You see, this is proof that Jesus is God. He didn't stop them from worshiping him even though some didn't worship because they doubted. Are you holding back? You know, is it that fear that if I really hand it all over to God, what are they going to think about me at work? If I really, if, if, if I really hand it all over to God, what's my family going to think about me? You know that in those questions, they're seated in doubts about Jesus. Because even though we may not have thought about it this way, ultimately what we're saying is, I don't believe Jesus can take care of this situation. I don't think Jesus can take care of this situation at work. I don't think Jesus can take care of this situation at home. I don't think Jesus can take care of it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put more faith in the situation than I'm going to put in Jesus Christ. And what's going to be the result of that? Don't worship. You see him and you don't worship. You don't fulfill the Great Commission. People that fulfill that great mission that God has given them in their life. They're people that see God and they're people that worship God. But I'd like for you to notice the next thing as we look at verse 18. In verse 18, Jesus makes a powerful, authoritative statement when he said, he came to them and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Think about that. Not just on earth. All authority has been given me heaven and earth. You can't name a place where Jesus Christ doesn't reign. You can't name a tribe of people that Jesus Christ should not be their king. You can't name a language that ought to not be praising the name of Jesus. You can't name an individual that Jesus Christ ought to be their master, their ruler, their savior, their God. That's why he's been given all authority that's why the Great Commission is to go into all nations, to every creature. And it ought to begin with me and you.
Have you given him all authority in your life? It's hard to fulfill the Great Commission when we've really not recognized him as the authority in our life. You see, when we do recognize him as that authority, we go to the next point, and that is, in that submission, we obey him. The word obey means in its root. In its root, it means to listen. It's the idea of to listen with intent to submit. And so like if a child is an obedient child, they're willing to listen to their parents expecting themselves to obey their parent. And so we say, okay, Lord, I lift you up in my life. I give you all the authority that I know you already have. So in other words, what I'm doing is I'm submitting myself to your authority. What do you want me to do? Now my ears are open. My ears that's willing to have a heart that's going to submit. And the Lord says, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make disciples. And I want you to do it by going and I want you to do it by baptizing. And remember Mark's account of the Great Commission says to go preach the gospel to every creature. So you see, whenever the gospel is preached throughout the book of Acts, the result is believers were baptized. And so he's saying, I want you to go and I want you to preach the gospel and I want you to baptize folks in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But baptism is not the end. Baptism is the beginning. It's the birth. The baby is born. Somebody has to nurture their baby. And he says, I want you to make sure that when that one is baptized, that you as a church family are there to help them grow. Continue to teach them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. It's not that for one person, one of us will be everything. But as a church family, all of us ought to be able to help every person that comes to the Lord. We ought to be the ones going, sending, teaching, preaching. By the way we live, allowing our life to be a sermon that's going to be the most powerful sermon that most people ever hear or see about the Lord. When someone becomes a Christian, being that strength as a brotherhood, as a family, being that strength to walk with them, to encourage them, to not give up on them, to be patient with them. That's the obedience part. People that are willing to obey the Lord can fulfill that commission. But we also realize that we can't do it alone. We are empowered. People who are empowered by God. Notice the end of verse 20. And lo, I am with you always. Isn't it awesome to know that we do work in partnership with God? When you take a stand with Jesus, you may be the only person in that room at work that's taking that stand but you are not standing alone. It may be in your family that you take a stand with Jesus and it may feel like you're the only one in that family standing, but you're not standing alone. The Lord says, I will be with you always. You say, I'm nervous to talk about my friend, to talk to my friend or my coworker about the Lord. That's understandable that we're nervous, but remember, remember, we never talk to somebody about the Lord alone. Jesus is literally right there with us. Lo, I'm with you always. I'd like to close by going back to that list of what a mission does for us. The seventh one is a mission facilitates 
evaluation. If you're going to evaluate your life this morning based on the mission, 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. If you look to that commission that's given to us in the holy living word of God, and you're going to evaluate your life as a disciple, are you growing? As a disciple, are you reaching out to others by your words, by your example, by your love, by your prayers? When we say, well, what's the standard we need to evaluate ourselves? Surely the Great Commission is one great standard. This morning, we only pass through this earth once. We don't relive yesterday or yesteryear. Everybody we know is only passing through once. You and them will spend an eternity somewhere. What are we doing to fulfill that great commission? As a church family, it's very much a part of the identity of who we are. Surely we can do it better. I hope you'll honestly evaluate. I hope you'll be prayerful about it. What is it that the Lord would want us to do to share in His work? As a family, you heads of the homes, what can you do to fulfill the Great Commission under your roof? Do you realize that if the Lord's kingdom on earth, the church, over the last hundred years did not lose one of their offspring, do you realize how huge the church would be today? I don't say that to beat anybody up. But I say that to say if you have children at home, if you have grandchildren you can influence, if you have adult children, don't lose sight of prayers and your example. Listen, when we talk about the Great Commission, the first place that we must start is realizing that is the most important thing we can do in our home. Ivy League education doesn't trump the Great Commission. A quarter million dollar salary doesn't trump the Great Commission. Square footage or a certain brand name, popularity, D1 sports, nothing trumps the Great Commission. But the way I parent, does it prove that? Or the way I parent, does it seem like there's a lot of things that trumps the value of souls? As a congregation... We must be serious about the Great Commission. As a family, we must be serious about the Great Commission. And as an individual, let's sing a song of encouragement with you thinking about your soul. Wouldn't it be terrible to spend a whole 30 minutes this morning talking about how we want to move in the same direction toward heaven? And there's somebody here that's not going in that direction. We're about to sing a song. And if you need to get your life in one with God, by His grace, He makes it possible. 
If you're ready to confess that Jesus is the Son of God and be baptized into Christ for their mission of your sins, one that's willing to repent from the world and turn to God, we would love to help you with that this morning. That's the way to begin the Great Commission. Maybe you've begun that journey and you've lost sight of the mission. It's so easy for us to do. Come home to it today. Pray forgiveness. If we can help you, 